Thanks for joining me for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's jump right into Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 8. It was hot in the clubhouse, and the heat did not come only from the atmosphere. Henny wanted to know why George was the only one to reach in and take out the money. I want to touch some, too, he said. We'll get mixed up, cautioned Paul. If everybody handles it, let him. We can watch. Joey reached over and put out his small, flat hand on one of the packets of money. No one stopped him because he did not attempt to pick it up. In a moment, he took his hand away. He might have been drawing strength from the money. George continued to take out the packets and count them. They watched like hawks. The counted packets rose in several piles as Gracie jotted their amounts down in a long column. George stopped to rest as though tired and ordered hoarsely, See if anybody's outside. Henny went to the door, opened it a crack, and peered out like a conspirator. The small breath of air that came in was welcome. He closed the door quickly and came back. George took out more packets and counted. One of hundreds had a slip of paper under its rubber band marked $3,000. They discussed not having to count this, but when someone said it might not be right, they counted. It was right. Once George got mixed up and had to go back and count all over again. Every time one packet was finished, he added it to the counted piles delicately, as though it might be fragile. It was unaccustomed and arduous work. The money was mostly in fifty-dollar bills, though there were several packets of hundreds and quite a few of ten-dollar bills, and even thick packets of ones. They sweated and grew tired, overwhelmed by the size of their task and the amount it must represent. The bills stuck to George's damp fingers, but this sometimes helped in the counting, so as not to mistake two for one. Before snapping the rubber band over a packet of fifties, George reflected, I never even saw a fifty-dollar bill before, and here I am now handling lots of them. I saw one once, said Henny, when my father had one and showed it to me. He reached out with thumb and forefinger, removed the top bill from the packet George held, and brought it back to himself to look at closely, watched by the others. It was just like this one. Gracie took it from him and looked at it, and then handed it to Paul, who examined it front and back. Joey snatched it from him and said, I'll keep it. George grabbed it back and added it to the packet, stretched the rubber band over it, and took up another. Finally, it was all counted. They waited while Gracie figured the total. The figures were so large that she got rattled and lost count a number of times and had to go back over it again and when she was through, she seemed speechless. She muttered, I don't know if I add it up right. Abruptly, she thrust the notebook and pencil at Paul. He then took them and started adding. He went more slowly and more surely than Gracie. He checked over the figures twice, while the others waited tensely, though without speaking so as not to distract him. When he was through, he told Gracie in a whisper, You were right. George's voice was low, but still a scream. How much? Paul turned to him as though in surprise that he did not know and announced, It's two hundred and ten thousand dollars. Just exactly, said Gracie. It was stifling in the closed clubhouse, with the candle burning and casting grotesque shadows of the children on the walls, making them look like goblins and gargoyles and witches.
They gazed at the piles of money. It was not a million dollars, but it was a lot, enough for everybody to want and work hard for or fight bitterly to keep. Actually, the amount meant little to any of them. They only knew it was a great deal. Beyond that, it wasn't altogether real to them. For most of them, two hundred and ten dollars would have had more meaning. Even twenty-one dollars would be a large sum. Two hundred and ten thousand dollars was beyond real comprehension to them, except that they knew it was a big amount. In addition to its amount, the money had two distinctions. The first was that it was mostly in old bills. Few of any denomination were new or clean. The majority were quite old, greasy, torn, marked, stained, sometimes frayed, and creased. A number had been torn into two pieces and the parts fastened together again with transparent tape. The second was that it smelled only as old money can smell, with the odors of all who had touched it, taking a little from every hand and place it had been. Plain dirt, sweat, cheap perfume, cosmetics turned sour, liquor, food, tobacco, smoke, and various articles had combined their efforts in the revolting conglomerate of odor. Added to these was the decided tinge of mold from having been kept in the cellar probably for a long time. From the packets of money stacked up before the five musketeers rose an accumulative, concentrated stink that was almost overpowering. The cynical would call it the odor of life. The children kneeling, sometimes now squatting or sitting on the ground around it, did not mind this. They were barely aware of it. Those who noticed it breathed in the odor as if sniffing a delightful perfume. "'Now we've got it,' said Gracie. "'What do we do with it?' "'Do with it?' demanded George. "'Why, we keep it,' said Henny. "'We spend it,' said Paul. "'We're rich!' Joey shouted. "'We can buy anything we want. "'I always wanted a camel, a real live camel. "'I'm going to buy myself a camel.' "'George turned to him. "'You're going to shut up right now, "'or you'll have people coming here.' "'Abashed, Joey calmed down, but muttered, I'm going to get a camel, and I'm going to ride him all around Buckingham Hills and even into the city. You do that, Henny said, and they'll find out we got the money and take it away from us. He can't buy any camel, said George. I can, too, Joey sulked. Get something practical, Henny advised, like candy. I'm going to buy all I ever wanted. Jo Joey stuck to his camel. I can, too, and nobody ought to stop me spending my own money. I ought to have it all anyway, because I was the one found it, and it belongs to me. He reached out both hands toward the money. They grabbed him, holding him back until he relaxed, and then they lectured him. Paul told him, You've got to remember the motto of the musketeers. All for one and one for all. You remember that, don't you? No. Now, look here, Joey, Henny said. We've all got the same right. Paul figured out where the box was. He's really the one who found it, and you don't hear him claiming it all for himself, do you? Joey regarded Paul without enchantment. I want it to buy my camel. And George, Gracie pointed out, brought up the idea that it was still there. If it hadn't been for him, we wouldn't have looked for it. It's the same with Gracie and Henny, George informed Joey. They found it as much as any of us by being a part of our club. They dug and they worked for it. So you get over any idea that it belongs to any one person like you. If one of us had found it, you wouldn't want to be left out. 
Joey glowered. And if you ever try to take any of it for yourself, George threatened, you know what we'll do to you. What'll you do? Why, um, we'll bare your bottom and give you a good whacking. With that alone, Joey seemed to be impressed. The point is, Gracie repeated, what do we all do with the money? Henny asked in a shocked voice, do you mean we shouldn't keep it? I don't know, Gracie replied. Why shouldn't we keep it, George demanded. Joey came back quickly in the swing of things, returned from his selfish sidetrack. Finders keepers, he quoted, losers weepers, and we're the finders, Paul pointed out, and Mr. Wesley is the losers, or loser, whatever it is. The thought of Mr. Wesley sobered them. This was his money before them, the whole wonderful smelly pile of it, earned and saved and kept and counted and hidden for years and years. "'Say, wait a minute,' said Henny, turning to Paul. "'How did you figure out it was in the coal pile?' Paul told them. They regarded him with respect, but it did not seem to go to his head. George announced, "'We got to decide what to do.' Gracie said, "'Maybe we should tell about it.' "'Who? Tell who? What for? Why?' "'Maybe our folks,' said Gracie. Cries of protest came from the other four members, the gist of which was one saying for all, "'They'd take it away from us.' Gracie persisted. "'They'd save it for us, maybe to go to college or something.' "'We got it now,' George pointed out. "'Ourselves,' said Paul. "'They can send us to college themselves,' Henny stated. "'I don't even want to go to college,' Joey announced. "'Then the police,' Gracie argued. "'The police? You mean Mr. McGill and Detective Brawley?' They'd keep it for themselves. I'd just as soon give Mr. McGill maybe five dollars or a hundred and Detective Brawley maybe fifty, but that's all. Listen, George told Gracie, you're talking nutty. I only mean, is it right to keep it? What's wrong with it? I mean, it's ours. Whose else is it? George demanded. Mr. Wesley hasn't got any relations, and we found it, so it's ours. Paul reiterated. It said relatives. Angrily, George told him, I don't care if it's relatives or relations. It's the same thing. He didn't have any. I forgot that, admitted Gracie. Paul spoke judiciously. I think we're supposed to turn it in, and then if nobody claims it, we get it back. Turn it in? Gracie might want to consider telling other people about the money, but the thought of turning it in was another matter. Fat chance we'd get it back. Don't be a sap. Don't be crazy. Paul said, I'll ask my father. He'll know. George howled as if in pain. Don't you ask him anything. Don't you say anything about our money. You'll get it taken away from us. Well, I won't say we've got it, Paul promised, but I can ask him without saying that. Just a general question. Don't do it, George importuned. Do you hear? I guess it would be risky, Paul admitted. I'll wait a while. George gave a general lecture. If anybody else learns we've got this, we'll lose it, or it'll be stolen. Keep our folks and everybody else out of this. Does everybody understand that? Nobody says anything about it. Anything at all. I mean anything to anybody, anybody at all. They nodded with agreement, their eyes fastened upon the money, all in firm support of their general policy. Now, said George, we've got to get practical about what to do. End of segment eight.